Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo. I'm joined tonight by my co-host, Matt Philippe-Fitz. Matt, what's going on? Bill, I'm good. I'm going skiing for the first time on Saturday, so I'm very excited. Uh, but I'm also terrified because it seems like something where I could easily fall down a lot. That doesn't sound like fun to me. Well, if you fall down, you're falling down onto a bank of snow. So like, I suppose there are worse things you could fall on, you know? Right. That is true. I once I once hit a tree on a sled and had a black eye for my fourth grade pictures, uh, which objectively is very funny in hindsight that like nine year old me had this big black eye in photos my family proudly displayed for many years. Uh, so as long as I don't do that, I'll consider the weekend a big success. When in the calendar were your fourth grade pictures taken? So we had spring ones as well. We had spring okay. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had spring ones as well for some weird reason that like weirdly stopped eventually um but in i think i was in fourth grade yeah i hit i it was president's day weekend i remember because we were off from school and i just it was was all ice in northampton right by the high school and i and i banged right off the tree okay yeah i was i was very confused for a second but somehow even though that doesn't like even though that is an objectively weird thing to do that does make a lot more sense than well well you know we just we we just did our school pictures late in the year or anything like that (sighs) We're so we're yeah so so we're kind of sorry uh, I took that took it off the rails no it's fine (laughs) we're uh, we're we're riffing here because we're uh, doing another recap uh, season recap episode of the podcast tonight and we're going to be focusing on Penn State's defense the Nittany Lion defense finished sixth sixth nationally in defensive SP plus third in the Big Ten in points allowed per game, uh, middle of the road in yards allowed per game. Penn State's defense took on a very bend-but-don't-break uh, philosophy uh, on the defensive side of the football this season. Uh, one key injury really threw things through a loop, but for the most part, it was still a very good unit. Uh, but it's also a unit that has some questions as we get in to the 2022 season. That we'll end up talking about that in a little bit. But Matt, let's just start by giving our general thoughts on this Penn State defense from this last year. Um, like I think the broadest one that we could say is that like I had a lot of fun watching them. Yeah, for sure. I had a lot of fun, and it was especially fun because it was. Penn State was defense was good in such a different way than we've seen. They didn't get a ton of sacks. They didn't get after the quarterback a ton, but they just had really, really strong secondary play. And that was really cool to watch. It was cool to watch Jair Brown. I think it was a break or tie, at least the single season interception record, which is, you know, insane to think about from a Juco guy who this was really his first extended action at the FBS level. I know he was around in 2020, but you know, there was the COVID year, not all that many practices. It's a new position coach back there now. Like, he absolutely starred. And, and Jaquan Grisker was great. And Daquan Hardy came on strong. So it was just really neat to see you know, a Penn State defense perform at a high level, but just to do it in a way that at least I'm not used to seeing uh, from a Penn State defense in my time as a fan. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when I think of the, the, the Penn State defense's that are the most fun to watch. I think of defenses that are constantly creating these gigantic, huge, game-changing plays. And they did that in the passing game. Penn State picked off 14 passes this past season. Uh, Penn State's secondary, we knew coming into the year, was going to be a strength. Jaquan uh, Jair Brown's six led the way. And then otherwise, Daquan Hardy, Jaquan Brisker, Jesse Lukita, Joey Porter, Jonathan Sutherland, and Curtis Jacobs all reeled in an interception. But you mentioned it, Matt. There wasn't a lot of Penn State's defense gets into the backfield and just creates these huge, incredible, game-changing plays, again, in the defensive backfield. I mean, the Nittany Lions... We're 44th nationally in uh, tackles for loss. And a thing that really did surprise me, uh, even though I, I, I agree, like it seemed noticeable they didn't have a ton of sacks on the season outside of Arnold Ebiketti, was that Penn State was 74th nationally in sacks. They had 27 sacks 
on the season, you know, comes out to about two per game. Uh, I, I think that if you told me all that stuff, Matt, with the deep talent we knew this defense was going to have, that they weren't going to get to the quarterback a ton, that they weren't going to be blowing things up in backfields frequently, I probably wouldn't have believed you. And yet they still managed to make that work for them uh, and route to, again, having one of the best defensive units in the country. Yeah, this was a really great job by Pry. Because if you think about it, by the time mid-October came around, you were already down three starters, or at least three projected starters, in my mind, from your spring team. So you lose Adisa Isaac in, in before camp. Hakeem Beeman doesn't play for, for one reason or another. And then you lose P.J. Mustafer. So things could have gotten really bad very quickly. And, and granted, they did against Illinois. But it was a really good job to rally the troops by Pry and a really good job by John Scott Jr., who I think has more than earned his keep. And that that's an absolute home run higher in hindsight, man. He... He got the young guys ready after taking their lumps against Illinois. Obviously, you know, you wish that never happened. But as far as how bad things could have gotten, it it really was impressive how quickly Pry and Co. righted that ship with how how dire things looked up front. And they were able to keep guys uh, maintaining their red shirts, most no- notably uh, Jordan Vandenberg, who I thought played a really good uh, outback bowl. And now you have him back as a redshirt sophomore next year. And it, he showed that he could play, and they didn't feel they had to because of, you know, Devon Ellis and Keziah Izzard, who played really well. So it's just exciting to see this new influx of talent and then to hopefully get, you know, Isaac, Mustafer, and Beeman all back next year. I think we could see a, a pretty a pretty good flip on that front where the defensive line is causing a whole lot more havoc. Um, and the secondary is also good. Secondary is also pretty good, but the linebackers uh, – are going to leave a little bit to be desired. But I, I like what I saw out of that unit up front this year. And I, and I like the youth movement. It looks like we're on the uh, on the precipice of having there. Yeah, I mean, you you mentioned red shirts uh, beyond a guy like Jordan Vandenberg, Penn State, uh, in in part because, uh, you know, per reports, they asked to keep them. Jamari Budden and Kobe King did not play in the Outback Bowl, so they could uh, retain their red shirts. Both of them are now going to be classified as red shirt freshmen. Freshman moving forward, uh, you mentioned the linebacker room. That, that's going to be a big thing, the development of the two of them. We'll get to them in a bit. Uh, I'm glad you shouted out John Scott. Um, when, you know, this is kind of getting ahead of ourselves, uh, and we will have this conversation a little bit later, but looming over this entire conversation that we're going to have, Matt, is that it's happening on the heels of Brent Pry leaving to take a head coaching job. It's happening with Pry going to Virginia Tech and James Franklin going out and getting Manny Diaz to be his defensive coordinator. And we'll talk about that plenty, but I think it's really big for this defense. Obviously there's going to be a, there stands to be, I will say, a bit of a drop off heading into next season. Penn State's first, second, fourth, fifth, and sixth top guys in terms of tackles are all moving on to the NFL, whether they're out of eligibility, whether uh, whether they're out of eligibility or whether or not they decide to make the jump at this time in their careers. That mixed with the fact that their defensive coordinator is out means continuity is going to be a really important thing. And you're going to get some continuity in terms of the players who are going to be coming back. A guy like PJ must have huge in that regard. A uh, guy like Curtis Jacobs, you look at the defensive backfield, Joey Porter Jr., Daquan Hardy, Jonathan Sutherland, Jair Brown. All that stuff's big, but the really big thing is that Penn State did not lose any position coaches on its defense other than Pry uh, leading his linebackers coach. They kept John Scott Jr., who's going to be back as defensive line coach. They kept Terry Smith as cornerbacks coach. Anthony Poindexter, after a very public flirtation uh, with his alma mater, the University of Virginia, decided to stay on as safeties coach. And I think that we you do lose Lorik. You do so the other, the, other guy Lord, yes. line, you, the other guy in that linebacker room. How involved he was as outside linebackers coach, I, I, I don't think it was much. But that is a, it is a guy you lose on that front at least. Yes, uh, Penn State did lose its uh, its special teams coordinator uh, Joe Lorig, who is moving on uh, to uh, the University of Oregon, replacing with Stacy Collins, uh, formerly of. Boise State. Uh, But I think when you look at 
that having that level of continuity in your coaching staff, that level of familiarity with James Franklin, with the players, all the sorts of things, is going to be a really important thing for Penn State football moving forward. But as we look back on this past season and we look at the players who were involved, I mean, again, it's a bit of a weird episode, Matt, because we're going to talk so much about guys who are not going to be there next season. But having said that, I really think so many of the players on this defense, particularly a lot of the ones who have are making that jump to the NFL, really deserve celebration because there were just so many really impressive individual efforts at all three levels of the Indy Lion defense. Yeah, for sure. I, I like the all three levels point because I think there's a good chance that there is a guy drafted in the top two rounds from Penn state in at all three. I think AK can go pretty quick. I think Brisker can go pretty quick and assuming, you know, Smith tests the way he will, I could see him sneaking into a, to a second round pick, maybe even first, depending on, you know, what teams think about him. So that's really impressive, especially after this terrible, no fun, bad seven and six season to have three dudes potentially going that high is it's just a real testament to pry in that defensive staff room. And Penn State's going to miss him a lot. I think he's a great fit down at Virginia Tech. Uh, I know I'm also a believer that change is very healthy in college football. And uh, I'm excited to see what Diaz brings uh, here in about nine months. In, in, in about, well, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll always have the blue-white game, which is a very important thing for all of us to remember. But let's start by going doing what we did with the offensive pod. Uh, we did – went position by position. Uh, this isn't going to take as long as it did for the offense uh, because, well, there are fewer positions for us to talk about. But I'm, let's start, Matt, with Penn State's defensive line. Uh, like we mentioned, they didn't make the kinds of game-changing plays that I think you might have penciled them in for at the beginning of the season. Arnold Ebiquette led way led the way for the team with nine and a half sacks. Uh, the guy who came in second in sacks, uh, one, one is Curtis Jacobs. We will talk about him uh, in a second. But the other guy who finished in the finished with three sacks on the year was Smith Dilbert. And all three of his sacks came against Arkansas in the bowl game. I say that to say this. Despite the fact that Penn State's defensive line wasn't really dominating opponents every single snap, I still think this was a very, very impressive year out of them. Oh, for sure. And no doubt about it. Uh, AK absolutely thrived. I was a little bit concerned about that jump from really only one productive season at the group of five level to, to move up there and to the FBS level and really, really play as well as he did is just a big testament to, to both him and John Scott Jr. So really, really excited for him. And then I'll stick on the edge to start. Nick Tarpurton, I was really happy with what they got out of him. I think he is just a high floor, low ceiling kind of player. And, and he gave them a lot of really good reps. Uh, Smith Vilbert, again, how much can you really take away from uh, the three sack game against an Arkansas team that really had no business throwing in that game is, is you know, up for debate, but I think Tarburton, uh, Vilbert, um, AK really formed the perfect rotation. Like that's really all you could ask for. And then you bring in a guy like Luketta who thrived in that edge rusher role. And I think really played himself into a much higher draft position just by how relentless he played along that defensive line really rounded it out to be a pretty strong group of edge rushers for what we could have expected. Is this even in the same you know, stratosphere as what we've seen in the past? Probably not. Uh, but considering, you know, you lose Isaac, you lose Beeman, you lose these really key pieces really, really early on. And then from there to get this production out of a transfer, uh, a converted linebacker, a guy who hasn't really played that much, and then a young guy in Vilbert is just really impressive. So really big credit goes to those guys in that position room. And I'm really excited to see what AK does at the combine and what Luketa does there too. And I think those are two guys who can play a long time in the NFL just by nature of, of how they play the game of football. Yeah. I, I, you, you mentioned something that I, like, I think is really important this entire conversation, but like Penn, before they even took a snap, 
Penn State's defensive end group was compromised. I mean, Adisa Isaac ends up going down, unable to play this entire season. Well, he was the guy who was kind of penciled in as the one who was going to start next to, but not next to, bookending uh, Ebiquete and potentially have a breakout season. You know, dude is a former four-star recruit. We've seen flashes out of him of being a really impressive, really impactful college football player, 6'5", defensive He played end. as a freshman. He played yeah. as a true freshman along the line. That's super rare. The only other edge rusher I can really think of who did that was was YGM, at least to that you know number of reps that Isaac got. Like He, he can clearly play the game of football and could from yeah. a young age. And, like, you look at what he is. He's a 6'4", 244-pound defensive end with speed and, you know, that quick twitch and that explosiveness to his game. And you look at Penn State's defensive end room, and that's just something they didn't really have. They didn't have someone outside of Ebiquete who has the kind of really impressive physical profile and has played some level of college football. I mean, even going down, uh, other dudes in that room, Smith Vilbert, not really. Zariah Fisher, not really. I mean, Vanover, not really. Tar Burton is a kind of different sort of defensive end. He's more the big, physical, set the edge against the run, uh, that sort of guy. So going into the season, that prop, like, what you just what we've mentioned about sacks and tackles losses makes a little bit more sense considering that. And then despite that, they still managed to be a good group. I, I thought Tarburton, he he's probably the guy who I don't want to say impressed me the most, but he's one of those guys who maybe go, oh wait, no, there's really something here. I think having that kind of physicality and nastiness at defensive end is just a really good compliment to whatever you're going to have on the other side of him, Etiquette. You know, I didn't like the idea of starting him uh, from the beginning for basically all the reasons that you laid out. And then he goes out there in Penn State's first game against Wisconsin, seven tackles, one sack, just looked like a guy who couldn't be blocked. So it's gotten to a point where now you look at what they have coming in the pipeline uh, in Isaac coming back and Smith Dilbert with more times Zariah Fisher, Bryce Mastella, I mean, Vanover, uh, some of the younger dudes that they have coming through. I just can't be worried about what Penn, Penn State has a defensive end, Matt. And then you kind of touched on it a, at, at the beginning when you talked about Hakeem Beeman, but Penn State's defensive tackle room found itself in a very similar situation. Guy goes down before the season even begins, have to rely on someone who transferred in, and they took their knocks this season. Uh, you mentioned the Illinois game, um, which that you know that's kind of going to be the thing that hangs over this defense. I think even though they allowed ten points in regulation, which I feel like we have to we should mention every chance we get. But that defensive tackle room, it was PJ Mustafer. It was a huge question mark next to him. It was then PJ Mustafer and Derek Tangelo, and then Derek Tangelo and a big question mark. And despite all of this stuff. I never felt like they were in a situation where, you know, this room is hopeless. This room looks like a room that doesn't have either of the guys who we expected to start for them coming into this season. Yeah, they never looked lost uh, with the, again, Illinois game withstanding. That was just the worst experience for this group uh, that they will ever have. Um, but, you know, I, I hyped him up all offseason. I'm a, I'm a big Hakeem Beeman fan. I think he is the best defensive lineman on this roster when he's out on that field uh, and then to lose him and then to lose PJ. And, you know, I'll, I'll give a lot of credit to Tangelo, man. He played a really, really strong season. I know he didn't have a lot of tackles, but that's kind of your job as that space heater. I mean, it's crazy to me that he had five and a half tackles for loss as basically Penn State's coming into the year as Penn State's third interior defensive lineman. So, Big credit to him. John Scott Jr. really knows what he's looking for in the portal, uh, apparently, because between him and AK, that, that's a great combo. And then I love what I ended up seeing out of Devon Ellis. This is a guy who is about to be a – it's his fourth year on campus, I think. This is this is the time you have to break out, and it looked like he was really on that path with a really strong campaign later in the year. And then what you got out of Keziah Izzard was pretty good. I, I like – that kind of Kevin Givens type guy who can bounce outside if they need him. I think that's that's a rarity. And Penn State's been really lucky to find guys who can kind of do that. But 
I'm excited to see what Izzard, Beeman, Ellies, and Mustafa are able to do. And, and that's even factoring in Jordan Vandenberg, who played a great, like I said earlier, played a great outback bowl and has a motor that doesn't stop and is still just figuring out the game of football. Like he went from a spring season at Iowa Western Community College to campus to being clearly ready to get on the field against a really run-heavy team in a really, really short amount of time. So I like where that room's at. I think Mustafa coming back is huge for 22 because what he was heading towards in 21 looked to be like a really special season. So just excited that they could get another shot and, and, and very grateful that Tangelo came in and was able to perform at a high level. Cause this could have been, this could have been ugly quick if it wasn't for him. Agreed. Uh, Epic going down, just looking at their top tackle guys, Epic Hete, uh, 62 ta- for the entire defensive line. Epic Hete had 62 tackles, Tangelo, 90, uh, 29, sorry, uh, Tarburton also had 29, must for 21, Koziah Izzard 21, another guy who uh, stepped in, and I was pretty impressed by, uh, you know, not right away, but I think that the more he played, the more comfortable he was, and I think that was kind of a, a, a constant thing for the defensive tackle room, I mean, even with a guy like Tangelo, you could tell that the more he played, the better it looked like he was understanding that uh, Hakeem Beeman, Devon Ellie's like uh, Devon Ellie's apologies, the guy uh, who really sticks out that way. But Ellie's and Izzard, the two of them seem like they're going to be at the very least innings eaters for Penn State. I I think Izzard at six three, uh, two ninety five is a physical profile that excites me. Uh, Ellie's another guy kind of like that uh, coming in at 6'1 and 303 and then Vandenberg like you mentioned at 6'3 and 292 I think you put a guy like that uh, and you know you can toss a keen beamman in there put that kind of guy next to a guy like PJ Mustafa PJ is going to get double teamed every single time he's out on the field and I think you have the makings of a fun interior defensive line I still want to see them have that kind of second guy who's able to you know in run situations you know that he's going to win so that when it's three offensive linemen against two defensive tackles, they're eating up guys. They're making things easier for the ends, for the linebackers, that sort of thing, to be able to attack a defense. But we started seeing the flashes out of that group, especially once Mustafer went down and it was kind of, we need to stay afloat, someone please help, that I feel pretty good about them heading into next season. Uh, Linebackers are a bit of a different story. Uh, Penn State's going to lose – uh, Ellis Brooks, it's going to lose Brandon Smith, both of them to the NFL. Jesse Lukita as that bit of a tweener type uh, going to be moving on to the NFL. So you look at this Penn State defense. What does it have coming back at linebacker? It's Charlie Catcher. It's Curtis Jacobs. It's Jonathan Sutherland if he ends up moving down to linebacker. Some concerns about their moving forward, Matt, but I think when you look back on last year, Jacobs to me was a bit of a revelation. I thought Jacobs seemed like, uh, you know, he just seems like the kind of game changer uh, that you Penn State wants to have at linebacker. Brooks, steady, constant, uh, really good at just diagnosing a play before it happens and reacting to it, getting guys in position, like quarterback in the defense. He's just a really impressive football player. And then Brandon Smith, I thought he had an okay year. I think his issue was he was the five-star after Micah Parsons. And it makes the fact that he had the second most tackles on the team with 81, the fact that he had two sacks on the season, the fact that the only players with more passes defended than him were Daquan Hardy and Tariq Castro-Fields, the fact that he was second on the te- tied for second on the team in forced fumbles – all that stuff's not quite as impressive because I think we expected him to be like a Parsons. Don't get me wrong. He's not a perfect, wasn't a perfect football player by any stretch of the imagination. But I think in the aggregate, you take those three linebackers and it was not Georgia level, obviously, not maybe not Alabama level, but a very solid, very reliable, and very fun to watch group of linebackers. Look, I've been Alex... Ellis Brooks Hive for a long, long, long time. And it was great to see everybody else really come on board because that was really enjoyable uh, for a a guy like me who has been banging this drum for years now. And he ended up with 
the most tackles a linebacker or a Penn State player in general has had in a regular season since Mike Hole. And, like, think about where Mike Hole sits in, like, Penn State linebacker lore for a lot of people. Ellis Brooks deserves to be higher up than he's going to be. He was a great football player for Penn State, played a lot of games, never really made that many egregious mistakes, like, came up with timely turnovers, he, Penn State does not win the Wisconsin game this year without the game Ellis Brooks plays. So I really, really hope, I think NFL scouts are going to see that he is a guy who can, maybe isn't the fastest, maybe isn't going to be the most valuable on special teams, but you put him in there, he's going to be able to call your defense. He's going to make sure he gets his tackles. and He's going to be a great player for a long time. Curtis Jacobs, I think, really started to put it all together. Like you were saying, it was kind of a revelation. I didn't expect that out of him. I think he was always kind of looked at as like the, uh, the third guy, the the, the unknown, but it, it was great to see him really come on, and, and that's a big testament to Pry and, and to Jacobs. And then, look, yeah, Brandon, I, I mean, I mean, if I may, if I may, just with Jacobs real quick, like you look at Brooks, who was uh, I believe a fifth year senior. You look at Smith, who was uh, a, a a true junior. Uh, Jacobs, as a true sophomore, was a guy who. You know, he just kind of inherently was always going to need a little bit more time than the two of them to really come up to speed. And I think by the end of the year, like we absolutely saw a dude who can be a building block for this Penn State defense going forward. He's the he's the he's the centerpiece. No matter how you swing it, I don't know what Penn State's going to run under Pry. Or, I'm sorry, under Diaz, or how they're going to build the roster with how thin the linebackers are. But it all has to be built around how often can we get Curtis Jacobs on the field or, or how many plays can we get him on the field for? Because he is the centerpiece. Um, and, and then going back to your Brandon Smith point, like it, it's hard to be a five-star. It's even harder to be the five-star that follows Micah Parsons. Like Smith was, Smith was fine. He performed at a very high, <clears throat> excuse me, at a very high level for at least a year and a half. And that's really all you can ask for out of like 98% of college football players is to give you about a year and a half worth of meaningful production. So he's going to be a guy who's probably, I think he's going to like similar to Jason Oway, he's going to be a better pro than he was a college player. And you know, that's a bummer for Penn state, but it's another flag, another flag, another, what's the word? Feather. Jesus. Another feather in James Franklin's hat. I don't know why I just blanked there on the word feather. Because uh, he's going to be a guy who's going to play a long time in the pros. Again, he'll test well. I think when he can commit to football full-time, it's going to be a whole new ball game for him. I think we'll really start to figure things out a lot quicker. Um, it just is a kind of a shame that it never really felt like he hit his ceiling here because he has the body type to be just a, a truly dominant force. And I really hope he finds it in the NFL. And I, and I hope that this decision to, to – venture out a year early uh, really pays off for him in the end. Yeah. I, I, I think just in general, so much of, so much of what made this Penn state defense really good this past year was Ellis Brooks. Um, I think Ellis Brooks and again, his ability to, what's the word I'm looking for? His ability to play a game of chess before snap, against the opposing quarterback was something that was very important. Uh, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't Nakobe Dean. Like he wasn't doing that. Nakobe Dean is a football genius, but he was asked to have a similar role in Penn state's defense where he's the guy who is communicating with everyone. Who's making sure guys are in right positions. Who's supposed to see the thing that the other team is doing and go, okay, I saw this on film. I think they're going to do this. How am I going to respond to it? And when I look at this Penn State linebacker room, I think that's the thing that they're going to end up missing the most is having that sort of guy who is able to, you know, to further the chess analogy, know where every single pawn has is going to be, what the other person is going to do once the ball is snapped. I mean, you look at the linebacker room, Charlie Catcher has been around a long time, hasn't played a ton of has played a little football, but hasn't played a ton. Jonathan Sutherland is a, you, you know, I, I like respect to him for all he's done for the university. I just don't know if he's a linebacker of that caliber. Tyler Elston need to see more of him. Jamari Budden, Kobe King, that's a huge ask for them. That's going to be the huge loss. I don't think we totally understand 
how special of a football player you have to be to shoulder the responsibility that they put on Ellis Brooks. And having a guy like Ellis Brooks makes it easier for Curtis Jacobs to come along at the speed he did. Makes it easier for Brandon Smith to go out there and be a guy who was tasked with making plays, even if, again, he didn't always make them. He was a guy – he. I, I don't have this stat. I would assume that Brandon Smith probably missed more tackles than anybody else on Penn State's defense. But having said all that, I still think this was a good linebacker room, a really good uh, season for them, really good performance. You mentioned Curtis Jacobs, uh, what we saw out of him in the bowl game, 10 tackles, eight solo, one sack. Like Just by the end of the season, uh, against Ohio State, seven tackles, five solo, Maryland, five and five, Michigan, six and one solo, Michigan State, eight and three solo. He started to put together something to build on, and that's really all you can ask for out of him. Um, I like I, I, I think that the linebacker room is going to look a lot different. I, I mean, I know it's going to look a lot different next year. I'm a little bit worried about it, Matt. We can go in depth on this sort of thing in a second, but like I think just generally – for how limited physically Brooks was, you know, I just mean that in that he wasn't the sort of dude who's pinging around back and forth sideline to sideline like crazy. And for the occasional lapses that I think we saw out of Brandon Smith, I don't think Penn State fans are totally prepared for what happens when you replace a guy who's played a lot of football in a five star with a bunch of guys who haven't played a lot of football who are not five stars. Real quick, can I ask you a, a remarkably unfair question? Sure, why not? Simply, simply blue and white career. Who had the better Penn State career, Ellis Brooks or Micah Parsons? Micah Parsons. Really? That's yeah. really wow. That's yeah. crazy. Okay. I think it's Brooks overall. Full that, body that, work. That, we only really got we only really got a season out of Parsons. Yeah, that, that, that's totally fair. I'll still say Micah Parsons because I've just never seen a football player wow. quite like that. Wow. All right. I'm I'm actually stunned you said that. I am I am truly surprised. Okay. That's fine. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 2022. This linebacker room is going to be scary. Um, Brooks is gone. Smith is gone. Jacobs is back again. He's the centerpiece. Uh, Charlie Catcher is probably going to slide in to that starting lineup. Uh, I know. I think it was Parsons a long time ago said Charlie Catcher is the best football player he's ever played against. Uh, granted, that's when he was a safety back in high school. And, you know, now it's five years later as he's in his fifth year. Uh, and then outside of that, it's, it's Sutherland who, you know, he'll give you, you know, six series a game and, and hopefully he plays well in that role. And then from there, it's, you know, Tyler Elsden. I think Kobe King is a guy the staff was prepared to burn their red sh- his red shirt earlier. He's based upon some stuff that I've read. Uh, and that's that's always a good spot to be in. Uh, so hopefully he can hold down the mic. But unless you're bringing a transfer, I mean, you might have to go four two five more often than not for next year, just to simply make sure you have your best players on the field. Because frankly, I don't think there's three guys in this current linebacker room who can go out there and give you a quality sixty minutes of football. And, and that's a that's a scary spot to be in. Yeah, yeah, I think I think I'm inclined to agree with that. Uh, there is a it, good news is that they're surrounded by uh, two units in Penn State's defensive line and uh, what's coming up now. It's defensive backfield that I think are quite impressive. And you look at the mini line secondary. Yes, it's going to end up losing uh, Jaquan Brisker, who you know magnificent football player. It's going to end up losing Tariq Castro Fields, uh, but otherwise. You look at what they have coming back, cornerback Johnny Dixon, Marquise Wilson, Joey Porter Jr., Daquan Hardy, all going to be coming back next season. Safety, Jair Brown, Keaton Ellis. Like, they have talent in that defensive backfield. I'm a little bit concerned, I suppose, about the number of bodies that they're going to have. We can get to that in a second. But, like, Penn State's defensive backfield, Matt, coming into the season, it was hyped up as possibly being the best in the Big Ten. And I didn't see anything out of them to make me think otherwise. I thought this was a very, very good defensive backfield for the Nittany Lions. Yeah, and it starts with the emergence of Jair Brown. We all knew, uh, I don't think we knew, but we we understood the hype Brisker was getting. And 
although it didn't really you know seem it was warranted heading into the season he backed it up with a really strong campaign and you know to pair that with brown who quickly established himself as a as a pretty good ball hawk was was a really really beneficial thing for this penn state secondary and the defense as a whole and then in that cornerback room uh you know castro fields just never really seemed like his old self i thought porter jr took a step back and again i think i think he's he might be a safety long term. He's just so big, man. Like I get the appeal of large corners, but he he just kind of he struggled a bit. And then you had the emergence of Kalen King, who backed up all of that early enrollee preseason hype. Daquan Hardy, who I really hope the staff doesn't move to safety because I think those corners who have moved to safety have never really worked out all that well. We'll see. Keaton Ellis still has a chance to change that trend. Uh, and then Johnny Dixon came on strong, and, and I really liked what we saw out of him. He really took on a bigger role late in the season. And, you know, that's a guy who played early down in the SEC, so he clearly knows what he's doing. So I like what they have going forward. Um, I think no matter what happens, they're probably going to take a step back just because you're you're going to lose Brisker. But overall, I think this unit can stay very close to how they performed in 2021. And, and after the season they had to, to expect not much of a drop off is a great spot to be. So I, I like what they have coming back. And I really like what a lot of those guys did in 2021. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I would say when you look at this defensive backfield in 2021, maybe the only like thing it lacked again was guys consistently making crazy big plays. I Jair Brown kind of, uh, J- Jair Brown kind of uh, took all of them for himself with six tackles on the, I mean, six interceptions. I mean, if he had six tackles in the year, that would have been really bad. Uh, but then you go to, you look at guys in terms of passes defended. Tariq Castro fields at seven. Daquan Hardy had six. Caleb King, Jair Brown, Jaquan Brisker, Brandon Smith. Uh, sorry, not Brandon Smith. Uh, Joey Porter. Oh, no. Smith did it. Sorry, I read this wrong. Uh, King, Brown, Brisker all had five. Porter had four, Johnny Dixon had two. Again, he played a little bit more towards the end of the season. And I think that the success that that group was able to have, despite the fact that there wasn't a pass rush get, because that, that that's kind of the thing that hurt them last, you know, the season before, right? Pass rushes weren't getting home. As such, teams found they were able to throw the football on Penn State's defense, this season, it was kind of the same thing. Other than Arnold Ebiketti, they didn't have a pass rush that was consistently get home, consistently getting home. And despite that, Penn State's defense was very good at saying, yeah, you can go ahead and complete the short pass, but we're not going to give you a ton. Like, you're not going to be able to really get anything over. You're not going to be able to really beat us over the top Uh all that frequently because this is like this is just what we're going to do. We're going to be a really solid, really fundamentally sound passing defense. Nittany Lions were eighth nationally in team passing efficiency defense behind only UCF, Iowa, Clemson, Wisconsin, Washington, Georgia, and Cincinnati. Two of those teams played for a national title. You know, the basically the rest of them were all very, very, very good football teams. And then there's Iowa. So you look at all that stuff and you look at a defense that. Again, they weren't really creating those kinds of havoc plays in the front. You were asking a lot of the guys in that secondary, and I thought they generally answered the question, especially I mean, especially at safety. Corners, I thought, were good on the season. The safety play was exceptional. Jaquan Brisker was an All-American. Jair Brown had a case to be an All-American. I think after what we saw in 2020 where it was Brisker and Lamont Wade, I was not really expecting them to be this good, but... But Brown came in and they were just spectacular. They, you, you go through and look at the teams they played, the performances they put on, and it, it was just consistently excellent football out of Penn State's safety room. And I really do think that is going to continue heading into next year. But, you know, you go into Columbus and you play against that Ohio State team and you allow 305 passing yards for C.J. Stroud and one touchdown through the air, you have a pretty damn fine defensive backfield. And I think that is going to be the case heading forward next season, um, which next season has a pretty big question mark hanging over it, Matt. And that is they're going to have Manny Diaz in there. They're going to have a different defensive coordinator, someone who 
is unique in that Franklin went way outside of what he normally does in hiring. I mean, he didn't hire a young up-and-comer. He didn't hire someone with whom he has tons of experience and tons of history and that sort of thing. He saw that a really good coach was on the market and said, that's the guy that I want to get. So what are just your general thoughts on how things might be different going forward with Manny Diaz at the helm of Penn State's defense? Yeah, real quick, is my is my mic back? I know I had some mic problems before. Yeah, you sound good. Okay, perfect. Um, how I feel about Diaz? Well, Diaz is probably the biggest name assistant coach Franklin's brought in, uh, maybe ever. I mean, I know Jomo was a big hire, but like outside of FCS football nerds and like people like us, no one really knew Joe Moorhead. I feel like people know who Manny Diaz is because he led a blue blood program for multiple years. Uh, what I think is going to be the difference going forward, I think since maybe even going back to like Ted Roof days, man, like this philosophy has been bend, don't break. And it worked for a long time, but I, I don't think that's the best course of action. I think Georgia and Alabama are great examples of let's go control the game and let's play this very aggressive downhill style of football. And that's Manny Diaz to a T, man. He wants to get after the quarterback. He wants to force turnovers. He wants to go out there and be as aggressive as possible. And it's been successful for him, you know, when he's been a coordinator. I know, you know, head coach is a different story, but that, that's such a different game than being a coordinator. So I think we're going to see Penn State be very aggressive. I, I hope they have the skill to do that. Again, the linebacker room is, is just a bit concerning. So I think we'll see a lot more things out of like safeties and corners, and they're going to have to get up there and play downhill and, and make plays behind the line of scrimmage. But I think this is going to be a very aggressive unit. And, you know, I think they have the the people up front to do it. And I think the secondary is good enough to cover up for, for a lot of mistakes that can happen when you play an aggressive style of football. Uh, but again, it's all going to come down to how they fill out that linebacker room. And, and if they can find the pieces, I think this could be maybe not as as productive as a defense as we saw this past year. But I think they're going to be a lot more fun to watch. I think they're really going to take on some of that swagger. I feel like Pry is very much in that um, Bud Foster vein of this is your job. Put on your hard hat. Let's go to work. Whereas Diaz is just going to say, hey, let's make a play and then let's have a party. And I, I think that's going to be a really... Uh, a fun wrinkle and something that we haven't seen out of the defense in maybe even ever here at Penn State. So I'm excited to watch this new this new kind of swagger Diaz is going to bring with him. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping for a little bit more aggressiveness. I'm hoping for a little bit more of an emphasis on let's go out there and let's have the defense make big plays. I mean, like getting off the field is a big play. Don't get me wrong, but I think back to those early Franklin teams where the defensive line was Carl Nassib, Anthony Zettel, and Austin Johnson, and those guys were getting into backfields. They were consistently among the top teams in the country in terms of sacks, and that just hasn't really been there the last couple of years, and I'm, I'm interested. I love, I'd love to ask a person who knows film. How much of Penn State's strategy with defensive ends was – having their ends basically keep quarterbacks contained in the pocket and not let them get out and extend plays with their legs, either by running it or just, you know, instead of having three seconds to throw it, having 10, you know, five, six seconds to throw that sort of thing. And how much of it was, we're just going to pin our ears back and try and get home and see what happens. Because my hunch is it was probably more of that first thing. And I would love to see a Penn State defense that, you know, you made the comparison to Alabama and Georgia. The thing that those defenses do is they don't let you play your game. They are going to force you into making mistakes. They are going to be flying around. They're going to make it look like they have an extra man or two out there on the field. And I think when you look at how Penn State has been recruiting and how you just go through and it's four-star after four-star after four-star after five-star after four-star after five-star – at a certain point, you have to stop playing football in such a way – or you have to believe in playing football in such a way that you're, there's no such thing as you taking a risk because your guys are so good that you're not risking anything. 
And I don't know if that's the thing they have to develop, if that's the thing they have to coach, if that's the thing that's just not possible because they just don't have enough of that because there's a difference between that level and the Georgia level. But I want to see Penn State be a little bit more willing to say, all right, defensive ends, get home. All right, linebackers, fly around and make plays. All right, cornerbacks, go for interceptions. Do those sorts of things that are just going to change the course of a football game. And I think Manny Diaz is the kind of guy who inherently believes in that. And, you know, fingers crossed we end up getting that. But before we wrap this up, let's end with just a couple of quick questions, Matt. The first one, if you have to give an overall grade to Penn State's defense this year, what grade would you end up giving it and why? I have to give it an A-. And... I think the reason it gets into the A category is, is due to the losses you had of Adisa Isaac and Hakeem Beeman, and for them to still go out there, and eventually P.J. Mustafer, and for them to still go out there and make sure Penn State was in every game. I don't think the offense did the defense any favors at all, and I think the defense gave every favor imaginable to the offense, and uh, the offense didn't cash in, but the, the defense did what they were supposed to do, so... Obviously, I would like to have seen more sacks, uh, but for what we understood the season was going to be once we lost Isaac and um, Beeman and eventually Mustafer, I don't think I could have asked for much more. So I'll, I'll give them a good A- minus here. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go with a proper A. I mean, I think that you you couldn't have – the big thing that you were asking of them was don't let teams get into the end zone, and they did that. You know, I said they're third in the Big Ten in scoring defense. Michigan allowed 16.1 points per game. Wisconsin allowed 16.4. Penn State allowed 16.8. It's not like they were sitting here and there was just a clear gap between them and the top two. They were neck and neck with them. You know, they allow 10 fewer points and they're at the top of that list. Internationally, one, two, three, four. They were seventh in scoring defense. They were sixth in defensive SP+. Really, the only... I, I wonder if it would be an A plus if Penn State's offense brought it a little bit more, um, just because that the offense put the defense in such unenviable situations so frequently that they had to stand on their head, and they generally did. I mean, they were a, a porous, somewhat porous in terms of being letting teams move the ball. So I'll nick them for that. I'll nick them for. Again, not getting home on sacks, on tackles for loss as much as I would have liked. But generally, like, you know, at that point, you're just picking nits and you're basically saying, you know, you guys are really, 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 you're an exceptional defense. There's just a little bit of a gap between you guys and the defenses that went out and won their team's football games all the time. And that's fine. Like, that's fine. There's there's an inherent difference between Penn State and those teams, and they're just going to continue to be that kind of difference for the time being. Uh, last question. We can, uh, we can spend a little time on this if you want, Matt, if you want to just wrap it up quickly by all means. What's the biggest question that you have headed into, headed into next season for the Nittany Lion defense? So it's a two-parter, and I don't know how to best explain this, but I'll just try to talk it through. So the biggest question mark is naturally linebacker. And as things stand right now, I don't think there's anybody in the portal who can fill that gap and perform at the level Penn State needs, at least not anybody in there that, that would do any better than what they already have on the roster. So that that's priority number one, is if you can find a linebacker, if one comes in, you have to get that person. But if you don't, you have to be ready to change how you trot your defense out there. I don't know if Diaz has run a lot of 4-2-5. I know he's done it a little bit. How extensive that is, honestly, I, I truly do not know. But I think a 4-2-5 is a realistic option because of how talented Hardy is, how talented, you know, Porter, King, um, Dixon, and then, you know, you're going to have Sutherland, who's kind of, a linebacker safety hybrid, and then you're going to have Ellis and you have, you know, all of these other players who can perform. So you have to figure out, are you going to be able to get a quality big 10 level linebacker in the portal? And I don't think you're going to have an answer to that until June, but you cannot go through spring, spring ball without getting the four, two, five ready. If that's the 
most realistic option for you in the fall. So the, the question mark really is, do you find a linebacker or are you going to have to change the base of the defense we've seen for almost a decade at this point? So it's going to be really fascinating. Uh, I, I think there's honestly right now, I don't think they're going to be able to find anybody in the portal who can go in there and play right away or perform at the level that, you know, a Kobe King or yeah, Kobe King or Jamari Budden couldn't. So I think we got to start getting ready for how can we get as many defensive backs on the field at the same time and how do we make sure we're still able to play a physical brand of football you need in the Big Ten going a little bit smaller on the defensive side. So that's going to be a fascinating chess match or a fascinating decision-making process to watch over the next few months. So that that's that's a big challenge for Diaz. And if he figures it out, man, this defense could be, could be pretty good. Yeah, I mean, kind of just going – off of that, it's will they be able to maximize their strengths while minimizing their weaknesses? And what I basically say is that, like, while yes, linebacker is crucial, like, it's incredibly important. If you have very bad linebacker play, I mean, you're Ohio State's defense, more or less, and they just overhauled it. Uh, but if Penn State is able to make that, I don't want to say not matter, but if their secondary is able to, to, be that kind of no-fly zone that we think they're, they have the potential to be. If their decline is able to just win up front every single time and make it so life is a little bit easier on those linebackers and you're basically not asking those, that level of dude to be the linchpin of your defense, I think they're going to be fine. But if they're putting all the onus on Penn State's linebackers, you know, we're, I'm looking at the scholarship chart right now. It's Charlie Catcher, Curtis Jacobs, it's Tyler Elsden, it's Jamari Budden, it's Kobe King. And they brought in two kids in Keon Wiley and Abdul Carter who, you know, maybe they're good players down the road. You never want to rely too terribly much on a true freshman. They like Wiley. I, I they like Wiley. Wiley. No, they for like sure. Wiley. Carter's a high-ceiling guy, but they think a lot of guys think Wiley is really underrated. So, And he apparently did really well at whatever big All-American Bowl just happened. So I'm curious to see what, what that turns into. It's a bummer none of them are on campus as early enrollees. That would have been for sure. I'm more saying like if your best option is to charge a true linebacker, a true freshman at linebacker, and it's not the kind of guy who is like a Mike Parsons, who as a true freshman you could just tell, oh, there's something different about that guy. That's not a situation you necessarily want to be in. So will they be able to look at their defense holistically and say? We're going to be a team whose defensive line and our secondary is going to take us home. And we're never going to ask our linebackers to do more than they have to. And is that candidly going to work? I don't know. It's a, it's a big ask, but I'd like to see them do that because I like watching Penn State's defense when it is very good. Uh, and I'm sure that is not an uncommon sentiment. Um, yeah, Matt, any, any, any final things you would like to mention about the football team you want to talk basketball what, 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 how, how you doing baby it's been a minute uh penn state basketball is pretty good i like what mike is doing so that's always fun he's really fiery which uh, i think you watched that same youtube video i did where he like really gets after guys in the huddle and, and considering he always seems like such a calm laid-back dude that was cool to see uh i'm bummed their game against minnesota got canceled but i think they can i think they can trounce Iowa, I think, on Sunday, if that's who they play. Pretty sure that's right. Uh, you know, tournament's probably out of the question here, but easy to see what they're building towards. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, I, I was at the Ohio State game. You know, they were in my backyard. I said to my sister and my brother-in-law, hey, guess what? We're going to a basketball game, and everyone was cool with it. And they – it was very obvious to me in that game that that team has some pretty – Penn State has some pretty serious – shortcomings um the way that ej liddell uh and zed key were able to just kind of throw themselves around physically that was just something penn state didn't really have much of an answer to uh but having said that they defended really well uh the lack of seth lundy and his ability to create shots and make shots for himself was something they really miss and whatever is holding him out i hope it's nothing serious and he'll be able to play because you see the pieces coming together on this basketball team. You see a guy like Jalen Pickett getting up to speed with power five basketball 
with each passing game. You see Greg Lee, he's already getting, you know, he's already starting to look like a guy who they trust he to rocks. take shots. Greg Lee yeah. rocks. They trust him to take shots. He trusts himself to make shots. You know, he was one for five against Ohio State. That wasn't really wasn't really great for him. Uh, but you can tell that they have a belief that he's going to be able to help them. John Hara busts his ass every time he's out there. Sam Sessoms busts his ass every time he's out there. And the big thing for me as I've been thinking about this team and watching this team at all that, Matt, is that I compare them to Pat's teams. And I think Pat and Micah both want them to go out there and fight and get into a fight and get into a battle, throw punches, you know, scratch and claw for everything they're going to get. And I don't mean this is a knock on Pat, not in the least, because it was something that I thought, you know, worked out pretty well um, when it was working out well. I mean, you go and look at Penn State basketball's history on Ken Palm. There's exactly one stretch where they had three straight top 50 seasons, and it was with Pat Chambers in charge. But I felt like Pat, when he was the coach, instilled an underdog mentality in the team. And a mentality of they're bigger, they're stronger, they're faster, they're, they're, they are all these things. But we're going to scratch and claw and make their life hell, and we are going to beat them. And we are going to compete because of that. And the sense that I just get watching Micah Shrewsbury is he wants them to do all that stuff, but not because they're the underdogs, but he wants them to believe that they belong at the table with every other team in college basketball. And that's just something that I find really admirable. Yeah, I agree. I, I like how pretty much in every uh, in every post-game press conference, uh, Shrewsbury has made a point to say, he doesn't want anyone to, you know, view Penn State on the schedule and think like an unexpectedly hard game uh, is coming. That they all think like, okay, that's going to be one we have to be on our A game for. So that that's cool to see. I I like the mentality. Uh, there's still a lot of Pat Chambers in this program in the sense that uh, the guys who are usually make giving Penn State good minutes are Pat Chambers recruited guys, uh, and, and that underdog mentality I think still still reigns supreme. But it's easy to see what Shrewsbury is trying to shift that into. And I, I agree that is cool to see. Yeah, that's that that's a I, I'd agree with that. And I think you could see that mentality really changing just with every single game. Uh just with every single game that they end up playing. Like they're that I don't know how many times we have watched Penn State play a team like Ohio State and fall down double digits and that's just the end of it. They just kept going out there and fighting and it really ended up working out for them. And I'm going to end this by just saying something that I, you know, I'm going to read a quote by Michael Shrewsbury and I'm going to put you on the spot with something uh, from, you know, Onward State's sports account tweeted this. Shrewsbury said he feels disrespected when people say losing to Penn State is a bad loss. Quote, we're not a bad team. If people want to come in here and take us lightly, they could do that every day. People who don't watch basketball think it's a bad loss when people come in here and get beat. Like, I, I just want that. I love this guy's mentality. I love his approach and I love how it's resonating. Uh, just because I know you watch basketball from the eye of someone whose uh, dad was a coach and you're just around that your entire life. What's your favorite thing about this Penn State team? My favorite, um, it, it could be the team. Their it pace could be a player. They are 347th nationally in pace uh, per Ken Palm. Out of, out, of out of 371, right? Is that how many D1 teams there are? Uh, there are 358. The oh, only the, the only oh power God. the only power five teams below them are Texas and Virginia. Uh, oh, Virginia is yeah, Virginia Virginia is always last. Uh, and then oh. you know you toss Villanova in there. But yeah, it could be a player, it could be um, a thing that this team does. Just whatever it might be. What is your favorite thing about this team? Oh my God, um, it, it's kind of a men- I don't want to say mentality because they've had the same mentality since Pat. I do like the fact that on any given night, it's easy to see a path for at least four dudes to put up double digits. I don't think that's unrealistic in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I know Shrewsbury gets a lot of credit as this offensive coordinator of Purdue, and, and I don't think we're seeing that just yet. 
but it's easy to see how he's creating looks for his big men. And granted, that's really only John Hara at this point. Greg Lee's kind of more of a wing, but you can see how he's looking to get shots for wings. And you can see the freedom he gives his guards, like Sesums, Pickett, um, really have a lot of freedom, I think, to, to take whatever shot comes to them. And I don't really think we had that. A lot of that was because Jamara Wheeler was the point guard, and that's just not something he was fully comfortable doing. But I like that it's very easy to see Shrewsbury is always looking for a way to get multiple guys their looks. And they had open looks against Ohio State. Like, they they shot horribly. But I like how, you know, the wings got their looks, the guards got their looks. And Hera, granted, had some professional talent guarding him. But I thought Hera could have easily had one of his better games if the looks just had gone. So I, I like what Shrewsbury is doing. I think it's it's very it's a very college basketball way of coaching the game of basketball. I mean, d- d- you know, you understand how everyone understands that it's such a difference right. between the NBA game, but he coaches it like he's trying to build a, a weird hybrid between getting any guy, any look that you see at the NBA level and running a consistent offense like we see at Purdue and like we saw at his Butler team. So it's just a really interesting mix. And I'm curious to see where it goes as Penn State gets, frankly, better players through the pipeline as Shrewsbury's tenure keeps uh, continues on. So excited to see what he builds in the future. I think this team can go with anybody in the Big Ten. So that's going to be exciting. Uh, hopefully they can make a run and, and maybe give us some hope of some some good days to come in March. So. That's where yeah, I'm at on that. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, for me, it's one of two things. Number one is that I just really love how there are three guys that you can give them the ball, Sam Sessoms, Jalen Pickett, Seth Lundy, and they could just make something happen. I mean, I think that Lundy's ability, you, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say he's an NBA guy or anything like that, but as a 6'6 wing who can create for himself a little bit, uh, who can hit tough shots, who has a nice looking stroke. He's a guy who, you know, I really want to see what senior year Seth Lundy looks like. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because he has this remaining year. I want to see that Seth Lundy because I guarantee that dude's going to be really good. And then Pickett and Sessoms are both guys with whom you can initiate your offense. And they're just such radically different players. Like Pickett just moves weird. I can't explain it, but like he does. I I I know exactly it, what you mean. There's I've never there's seen just a solid move like him. There's just something funky about him, and I don't know what it is. But like, he, you know, he just has like these long limbs, and he's constantly looking for a mid-range jumper where he got mid-range turnaround and he's somehow good at that. Like he's, he's a very interesting player. And like, I, the more I watch him, the more I enjoy him. And then Sessoms is just a guy who you can tell has been the shortest dude on the basketball court in every game he's played his entire life. And he's had to learn how to play like that. And it's, you know, it's worked out for him that he's been able to do that. But the bigger thing for me, uh, and this is kind of a more fundamental thing, um, is that you can see what Shrewsbury is trying to build offensively. Uh, defensively, it's just such a stark contrast from Pat's best teams. I mean, the, the team that uh, dang near made the NCAA tournament uh, was 12th nationally in block percentage and 64th nationally in steal percentage. The team that won the NIT was 22nd nationally in block percentage, 31st in steal percentage. This team, 321st in block percentage, 306th in steal percentage. They just want to get out there and dog you on defense and get you to miss shots and get rebounds and make something of that. But on offense, the way Penn State is break, getting its shots, 43.1% of their field goal attempts are three-point attempts. That is 68th nationally. If you look at how they break down their distribution of points, the percentage of total points that Penn State gets off of threes is 70th nationally, twos 225th nationally, and free throws 317th nationally. That's just not something that Pat did a ton of in 2018 when they won the NIT, despite having Tony Carr and Shep Barner, but they did do that a decent amount. Uh, they were 119th in three-point attempts at a percentage of their field goal attempts that were threes with Myron Jones, 
uh, with Miles Dredd, with Curtis Jones, with Seth Lundy, those sorts of dudes. So they're building a baseline of what this team is going to be. And I'm not going to sit here and say anything about the Pat Chambers era, but you can see how just fundamentally they want Micah wants this team to play. Pat's teams had to change over the years because of just general lacks of talent. But I'm excited. I think we're seeing a Penn State basketball team that is has that baseline for what it's going to be going forward, Matt. And I think just generally, you know, this next stretch of Big Ten games is going to be tough at Iowa, at Indiana, home against Iowa, at Wisconsin, home against Michigan, then away to Minnesota. That's when that game is going to be uh, changed up to Michigan State uh, at home. And then things get a little bit easier. But for the most part, like eight and seven, three and four in the Big Ten lost by a million points to UMass. And I'm still having a blast watching this team. Oh, for sure. This is going to be the mo- this is going to be the second most fun uh, NIT team we've seen from Penn State. So that'll be cool. I think I think they can get into the NIT. I, I, you know, if not for this next stretch, I would agree, but I think this next stretch is going to be, uh, you know, a lot, all of the people who have been really excited about the Micah Shrewsbury era and how it's different from Pat Chambers, blah, blah, blah. Then, and, you know, that basically fundamentally just comes down to winning basketball games. I think they might come back down to earth over the next couple of weeks. And that's fine. That's fine. They're working to build something right now. It's not their fault that all of their next five games are against teams ranked in the top 30 in Ken Palm. But neither here nor there. I'm sure we'll talk more about Penn State basketball moving forward, more about Penn State football, everything moving forward. Uh, any final things you want to mention, Matt, before I do the wrap-up? Nope, that's all I got. Awesome. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. As always, make sure you're subscribing wherever you go and get your podcasts. If you use Apple Podcasts, please go and leave us a five-star review. Please keep reading and supporting the site. Best way to do that is to go out and buy some t-shirts and make sure you're following us on all of our various social media channels. One last time, thank you very much for listening to this edition of Royal Lions Radio. For Matt Filipovitz, I'm Bill DePilipo. Take care, everyone. We are one step closer to Super Bowl champion Michael Mennett and the Green Bay Packers.